What are we going to do with all these stats? We'll ask Corey Schwartz, the VP of Stats for MLB Advanced Media, about tout wars, the growth of advanced stats in Major League Baseball, facts and flukes on the field, and more. Next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right-hander for the Giants throws. Swing and a miss! And that's it! The Giants are world champions as they come pouring out of the dugout. Circling Brian Wilson. The bullpen. Flying in from left center field. Dancing. Hugging. And celebrating for all you Giants fans, wherever you are. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of May the 24th. It's show number 19 of the 2013 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Corey Schwartz, VP of Stats for MLB Advanced Media, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst will be Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Jock Thompson. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Mark Appel and Jonathan Gray, the likely top two picks in the 2013 Amateur Draft. Our HQ Alternatives commentator is Matt Beagle, talking about how streaming is not just for pitchers anymore. In our HQ Matchup segment, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at the best and worst pitcher matchups for the next few days, including Cole Hamels against Washington on Sunday and Edenson Volquez at Seattle on Monday. And in Master Notes, Dan Becker, batting buyer's guide columnist, talks about trading John Segura. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, it's my wife's birthday this weekend, so what do you say? She's going to let me talk some baseball. Yes, it is my wife Lisa's birthday on Saturday of this week, so happy birthday to her. And thanks to all the spouses and partners and friends who help us with our fantasy baseball habits, mostly by putting up with all the time it takes for us to do it and watching an Astros-Mets game with us when American Horror Story is on the other channel. But no horror story here. It's the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League and leading off the National League report. And on the road and on the phone, it's our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. You're on the road on the way home from Disney. How did your grandson enjoy the trip? Oh, very, very much. Really enjoyed it. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I guess every kid should go to Disney at least once, if only to find out they don't want to go back. <laughs> very definitely. That's right. Uh, let's start with a, a column by Dan Becker this week at BaseballHQ.com. Nick, looking at some underachievers, and one of the names that popped up was uh, Arizona catcher Miguel Montero. Yeah, Miguel Montero has been a real rock in the catching department for the last few years, but this year is off to a very bad start. 189 batting average, 44 PX. He's got three homers and 148 at-bats and really seems to be struggling. But if you look behind those numbers, actually everything's pretty good. He's getting a good walk rate. He's making contact actually at a slightly better rate than we projected. Uh, his eye is good, a 0.61 I projected 0.53 I. So, you know, he, his skills are very, very good. The, a couple of problems. 22% hit rate, which we expect to correct itself. I mean, that's just a bad, just simple bad luck. 
and then a, about a 50% ground ball rate. We're, we're projecting a ground ball rate of around 43%. So uh, at this point in the season, uh, some bad luck for Miguel Montero. Probably a good time, I think, to buy low on Montero because we expect that he'll bounce back. Having said that, though, Nick, the decline in power index, uh, power index is a baseballhq.com metric that we use to, to scale power to a league average. At 44, that means he's under half the league average where he has for the last five years been over league average and sometimes well over it in the 130s. And uh, last year, just 108. This year, 44. That seems like a cause for concern. Perhaps it is, although I think a, a lot of the cause probably is that, that ground ball rate. Now, certainly if the ground ball rate stays at 50%, as opposed to around 43, 40% somewhere in that area, there's going to be a problem. But uh, uh, he still he does have three home runs. Home run per fly rate is decent at 8%. So I, I think there's a good chance that Montero will bounce back. His home run per fly ball rate, I was going to mention, at 8% is well off the last couple of years when he had those decent home run seasons, 18 and 15, and uh, $20 rotisserie value. And... So it's a combination of two things. He needs to hit a little bit more fly balls, and he needs to put a few more of the fly balls he does hit over the fence. Right, very definitely. That's, that's what needs to happen. So that might be something you want to watch, and those are the kind of things that can happen. So if you're looking for a speculative play, shall we say, or a buy-low play, and somebody in your league is, is looking to sell Miguel Montero out of frustration, not a bad investment. Uh, something of a surprise in Colorado this week, Nick, the Colorado Rockies sent Josh Rutledge, their second baseman, to the minor leagues. And uh, looks like DJ LeMahieu is going to draw in and get the at-bats. It does indeed. Uh, Josh Rutledge is biggest. Uh, Josh Rutledge was not having a great, uh, great year at the plate, but also was having a really bad year with the glove. So, Josh Rutledge uh, got sent down to work uh, largely on his glove work, and DJ LeMahieu was going to get some playing time. DJ LeMahieu's primary asset is going to be speed with a decent batting average, and even we're, we're projecting uh, right now for the rest of the season, two seventy eight BA. One home run, eight stolen bases. So not a lot of counting numbers. Probably a fairly solid play at second base. Not a guy who's going to build up a lot of counting stats. But he does have a, a decent B.A. Uh, and, and decent speed. Yeah, but you know what? I, I think this Josh Rutledge thing is going to be a little more temporary when they realize how much less a hitter LeMahieu is. I think it may indeed as well. I mean, Rutledge is likely to correct things pretty quickly, I think, in the minors and, and may be back very, very soon. So he's not a guy I would give up on at all. And LeMahieu is certainly not anywhere near the hitter that Rutledge is. The other thing about it is, like you said, it's primarily uh, he was struggling a little bit with the bat, uh, Rutledge was, but the uh, glove work is something that maybe is a bit of nerves or a bit of uh, unfamiliarity or whatever you might want to call it that could get straightened out with a, a bit of time in the minors, get his head clear, that kind of thing. Uh, don't give up on Josh Rutledge just yet, I guess, is what we're saying. Uh, over the New, uh, the New York Mets have an outfielder, Jordani Valdespin, and Ray Murphy's speculator column, Skills Searching for Roles, picked out Jordani Valdespin as a guy who could really do some damage if he could get some playing time. Yeah, Jordani Valdespin is a guy we've always kind of liked. He's got a good, nice power-speed combination. Uh, the problem has always been getting at bats, and, and, and also a B.A. situation with, uh, with Jordani Valdespin. A B.A. is going to hover around 250 most of the time, uh, not likely to hit a lot higher than that. But right now, the, uh, the, the situation in the New York outfield is um, uh, fluid, shall we say. So there's certainly a chance that Jordani Valdespin could find himself in regular playing time. And here's a guy who does have good power, who does have good speed, uh, could find himself in a situation where he could wind up with, a, say, a 15-15 uh, season if he can get the playing time. 
And uh, currently it looks as though that playing time uh, has a chance at least of happening. Right now we're projecting him for about eight more home runs and uh, 13 more bags for an 11-17 total season on 334 at-bats, which wouldn't be bad. But if you scale it up to 450 at-bats, all of a sudden it is more like 15 homers, 20 uh, stolen bases. So that would be good. Now, Nick, I was listening to a Cincinnati-New York Mets game the other day on XM Radio. It was a Mets home game, so we had their home crew calling the game. And they said there had been some reports that Jordani Valdespin is seen within the within the locker room as a kind of a me-first guy. He was even distributing T-shirts with his own name on them to the players in the locker room. And at least one guy, LaTroy Hawkins, apparently took some umbrage at, at the me-first attitude of Jordani Valdespin. Is this going to be a problem? It may, in fact, could be. I mean, Jordani Valdespin is a guy we've heard things out of the locker room as a guy who's uh, uh, sort of an attitude issue. Uh, and that might, in fact, prevent him from getting playing time if he continues with that kind of an attitude and doesn't get himself to the point where he's a team player. I guess they made they kissed and made up a little bit uh, to Hawkins and Valdespin. At least uh, Hawkins was seen wearing one of the T-shirts, which is a step in the right direction. But be wary that sometimes things like that can affect uh, playing time decisions because no organization wants to have a guy that everybody dis- dislikes in the lineup, unless he's really producing, I guess, that anything goes. But Valdespin is not a uh, Gary Sheffield type of guy, I guess. Right, not a guaranteed producer, very definitely. Right. And finally, Steve Nickrand had a pitch movement uh, study in his uh, recent starting pitching buyer's guide column, and one of the pitchers he looked at, and this is a name that has come up on this show and at BaseballHQ.com fairly frequently in the last year or so, Tim Lincecum of the Giants, still struggling. Yeah, still struggling. And, you know, when uh, Stephen Nickrand looked at uh, pitch movement, we find that uh, Tim Lincecum now has the least aggregate pitch movement in 2013 among National League starting pitchers of, of and so what, what's happened with Lincecum is he's lost pitch movement, he's lost velocity. Uh, there's really very little in, in what we see to expect that he will come back to his former levels. You know, everybody thinks about what Tim's, Tim Lincecum used to be as a pitcher, and, uh, and I think maybe now's a good time to buy low. It isn't. There's nothing in what he's showing at this point to suggest that he's going to rebound very strongly. I thought for a while that maybe Lincecum could turn it around and and recover some of those skills and some of that success he had in his Cy Young years. Uh, boy, it's sad to say, but it looks like there's there's something going on there that may be injury-related or fatigue-related. But I agree with you, Nick. Tim Lincecum at this point is just somebody you have to avoid. Yeah, I think very definitely. And not a guy you want to try to. If somebody offers him to you in a deal as a buy-low, even though he's only 29 years old, certainly a guy I think to stay very definitely away from. Okay, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us again this week. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes the National League Central Division Outlook for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Good to have you. Uh, let's start by talking about the news, and I think the biggest news of the week in the American League Ian Kinsler of Texas goes to the disabled list, and the call-up that everybody's been looking forward to, Jerickson Profar in Texas, featured in our daily call-ups report by Jeremy Deloney, will replace him on the roster. Jock, you also wrote about this in your American League West Division Outlook column. What are you thinking? Well, uh, first to state the obvious, as Jeremy noted in his uh, call-up notes, uh, uh, Profar's talented. He has a whole basket of skills. Uh, He does everything pretty well. Uh, second, he seems to be sharing Kinsler's vacated second base job with Lyrics Garcia. At least that's what uh, 
manager Ron Washington says, and that's what's happening so far. But third and most important for our purposes, he still doesn't have a real obvious place to play once Kinsler returns from the from the DL, uh, barring a trade. And uh, and Kinsler's injury isn't expected to keep him out that long. You did mention uh, Jeremy Deloney's report. He called him a switch hitter, incredible bat speed, great control and pitch recognition, decent pop, and a good understanding of the strike zone. Uh, above average speed, not a lot of stolen base results so far, but he sums up by saying the overall game and intelligence to be a superstar, so obviously we've got some uh, keeper league interest here. Yeah, and I've watched him play. I saw him play that uh, the first night he was in the lineup. He's awfully quick. He's a real good defender. Um, You can tell this guy's an athlete. Uh, He's going to be around for a long time once they find where he's going to play. So you mentioned the possibility of a trade if they seem to have an embarrassment of riches. Who do you think's the likely player? Yeah, when you look at the Ranger lineup, uh, David Murphy is really the most expendable Ranger. I mean, he's he's got obvious platoon skills. He struggled out of the bat when they tried to, to play him every day in April uh, after last year's outlier uh, 340 batting average against left-handed pitching. But uh, Murphy is a platoon guy. He has average power. And the fact that he's a free agent at the end of the year suggests that he would be the most likely to go. But even when you look at that, uh, Murphy's given Texas some pretty good regular production over the years. And and particularly now in May, after a slow start, he's hitting 290 in May. He has four home runs this month. For a a team that uh, is struggling a little bit offensively, at least relatively to to past years, I, I just I just don't see this a, a big likelihood. He he's just the most likely player to be traded if there is one. David Murphy a 908 OPS in May, a 524 in April, so he's really right at his ship. Is there a possibility here, Jock, that Texas just takes Profar, sends him back to the minors when Kinsler comes back and gets everything back to normal? You know, well, that's the only other option unless they're going to play him every day. He needs to play. There's no doubt, and he's still pretty young. A lot of this, I think, is going to depend on how the team is playing, uh, how they're doing offensively, obviously how Profar does, and who else might be injured. Sometimes, obviously, these things take care of themselves with another injury. Well, the Rangers do consider themselves a World Series-level team. Kinsler is clearly a part of the core, so he's going to play. And we know Ron Washington, the manager there, clearly prefers his veterans. So my guess would be, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, Unless Profar really sizzles in his brief time in the big leagues while Kinsler's out, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see him back in the minors at the end of that stint. Yeah, that's my take on this as well, PD. You're, you're pretty much spot on there. What about Luritz Garcia? Any value there? Well, again, it all depends on his playing time. Uh, this is another skilled guy. Uh, he's not nearly as skilled as Profar is. But in deep, deep leagues, if, 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 if he plays, uh, he's, he's got speed and he's got some versatility. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's value there. The, the, the real key is what's, what are the conditions and situations that could untap it? Yeah, you mentioned his speed, 143 stolen bases in five minor league seasons. I think he's been caught less than 40 times, which is a pretty nice ratio. No power at all, and he's been on base. He's had 11 stolen base opportunities, I believe, so far this year at the major league level, only one stolen base. So I don't know whether they've got the red light on or whether the game situation hasn't been ideal for a stolen base attempt. But, uh, you know, he seems like the kind of guy, if he's not running and stealing bases, there's really quite limited value here, at least in the short run. Yeah, and he's just on the wrong team for middle infielders. Texas has just a ton of middle infield talent, uh, both in the minors, on the bench, on the field. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know without an injury where, where his value is going to come from. Well, BaseballHQ.com's minor league scouting staff rates uh, Luis Garcia as uh, 
a starting middle infielder caliber talent, and he is only 21, so maybe there'll be some keeper league interest in him as well. Uh, Jock Cleveland surprised some people, I guess, by sending Lonnie Chisenhall down to the minors this past week. He's been struggling, and that creates an opening at third base, and, and some ros- roster juggling could provide some extra playing time for a couple of guys. Bob Berger wrote about it in his American League Central Outlook column. How does this look? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the lineups for the past week that the Indians have put out there, uh, Bob wrote first about uh, about Mike Aviles, and Aviles is is providing the the typical Mike Aviles numbers. He's uh, he's hitting a, a little for a little better average than he than he has right now, but he's he's giving you some good contact, uh, um, maybe a little pop occasionally. Um, but but the guy who also has been whose whose playing time has improved has been Jan Gomes, and Jan Gomes has been on a power tear uh, since they've 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 put him in the lineup. He's hit five home runs in his 57 at bats. Um, he's he's got good power. He's not real selective. Uh, Ray Murphy wrote about this in his speculator column. But um, they've been splitting time. It seems like one one of them is in the lineup every other day, and uh, and and it's turned out pretty well for Cleveland. Cleveland is uh, is is clicking right now, and and both Gomes and uh, and uh, Aviles are playing pretty well. And it seems to be working for Cleveland. They're playing great. They've got a lot of versatility on that Cleveland team, and everything seems to be working. What chance is there that Lonnie Chisenhall, who was a fairly highly regarded prospect, ends up on the outside looking in in the longer run? Well, you know, it, it's funny. I've always liked Chisholm primarily because every time I've seen him, he's he showed the proverbial sweet left-handed swing, and he and he has a quick bat that generates power. Entering the season, he had a career major league batting average of just under two sixty, which isn't gangbusters in, in three hundred fifty at bats, um, but it wasn't an overmatched territory. And I thought he was going to uh, to uh, uh, make his mark this year if, as long as he stayed healthy. His problem has been pitch selection and left-handed batters. Uh, he, he still has a 77% contact rate, which isn't great, but it's not something to disqualify him. He's, he's got a 3% walk rate, and until he shows that he can, he can take pitches and isn't swinging at everything, um, he's, he's not going to get back to Cleveland. I, I think he'll get another chance, but not immediately because Cleveland doesn't need him right now. Yeah, as you say, especially with uh, Aviles and Jan Gomes playing as well as they are, looks like uh, Chisholm might indeed be the odd man out. Uh, staying in the American League Central, Paul Konerko's 37 years old. He struggled to start this season. Dan Becker touched on Konerko in his underachieving hitters column. How do you guys see Konerko playing out for the rest of the year? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much with Dan on this one. This looks like an extension of Konerko's uh, second half when his uh, – expected power index or his power index dropped to uh, 87 um he's still hitting fly balls but they're not traveling as far as they used to now he's 37 years old and uh he, he's been awfully consistent i don't want to completely write him off particularly since he plays at uh, u.s cellular field which is very hitter friendly and the warm weather is coming but right now um Conerco's, uh power just doesn't look quite the same and uh, I, I i think he may have a spurt in him but i think it's the beginning of the end you mentioned power index. That's a uh, baseballhq.com metric that compares a hitter's power to everybody in the league. 100 is normal, you said, uh, or league average. You said Konerko's at 87, so that's under league average power, and Konerko's a power hitter, and if he's not providing that, he's not going to be providing much of anything. His month-by-month career splits show a bit of a jump in June, Jock, but there's no big first-half, second-half difference in his career, so... Uh, um, Things don't look great for Paul Konerko, I guess. Let's move on to bullpens. The term closer is pretty much synonymous with Mariano Rivera. 
But Matt Gelfand noted in his Facts and Flukes column this past week that in spite of all the love that gets shown for Rivera during his farewell tour, the numbers say that he's not the vintage Mo. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a tendency sometimes because of Rivera's name and, and because, let's face it, he's still saving games. He's not blowing anything right now to overlook the numbers. But if you look hard at the numbers, his his, his strikeouts are down. His 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 dom is down from 8.6 to uh, 6.8 strikeouts per nine innings. Um, his control is fine, but uh, there's a lot more balls being hit in the air right now, a lot more line drives. So uh, when you look under the hood, uh, Rivera is showing his, his 43-year-old age. On the other hand, I, I still, and, and maybe this is my bias too, I, I think he's the kind of guy with the, with the cutter and with the guile and the experience he has. He, he can probably survive another year, but uh, I'm not sure he's going to be an automatic all year long. Yeah, his DOM rate is off, as you say, but I did notice that his control rate has actually improved. He's now down to just one walk per nine innings, albeit in a handful of innings this year so far. That makes his command ratio seven strikeouts to every walk. That's still elite, at least. Yeah, and he, he knows how to pitch. His ERA is, is 1.56. He's he's really outpitching his expected ERA right now, 3.46 by almost two runs a game. So... um. Uh, by by no means are we saying go out and and trade Mariano Rivera. He's the closer for the Yankees, and uh, and and he has all kinds of experience and that great pitch that still is going to keep hitters uh, a little bit off kilter. But uh, there there are definitely some signs here that uh, that are that are making us take a second look. I'm I'm always a little leery of the expected ERA versus ERA on such small sample sizes. It's so few innings that you'd expect big variations in the, in those kind of scores. And finally, staying in the American League East, Stephen Nickrand, our fine starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist, has noted that Jeremy Hellickson of Tampa Bay has a pretty ugly ERA over five to start the season. But here's the opposite of uh, Mariano Rivera's situation. Uh, Stephen Nickrand thinks there's upside with Jeremy Hellickson. Uh, why does he think that, and what do you think? Well, Stephen's column was was all about pitch movement, and according to to him, uh, uh, apparently Hellickson's changeup has gained 1.5 inches of horizontal movement, and his two seam fastball has added nearly four inches of vertical movement. Um, so he likes Hellickson going forward, and, and if you look at it, it's real interesting. For the first time, uh, Hellickson's 5.37 ERA. He is underperforming his expected ERA by almost a run and a half. Uh, his his dominance is up uh, from 6.3 to 7.1. That's a good sign. His control is down from 3.0 to 2.5. He's almost, he's, he's right at 2.8 command-wise, so the trends are all real well. The thing that's killing Hellickson right now is a 59% strand rate. So, I, you know, I think I think uh, Steven is on to something here. Um, this Hellickson looks like a pretty decent buy low to me. Okay, Jock, thanks very much for telling us about Jeremy Hellickson and Rivera and all the rest of them, and we'll talk to you again next week. Okay, PD, see you next week. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com. He writes the American League West Division Outlooks and other columns and provides advice on boutique tequilas for the annual Baseball HQ Company Picnic. Our feature interview with Corey Schwartz, the defending Tout Wars Mixed Champion and Vice President of Stats for Major League Baseball Advanced Media, comes up next. Stay with us. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Smith, Corks one into right down the line. It may go.
Yeah. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. It's a pleasure now to be joined by Corey Schwartz, the reigning champion of Tout Wars Mixed League and uh, also the vice president of stats for Major League Baseball Advanced Media. Talk about the perfect day job for fantasy baseball. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Patrick. I appreciate it. I mentioned you're the defending champ of Tout Wars Mixed, and I always like to ask our feature guests, do you still play in any home leagues with your pals? Um, I really haven't done any sort of friends and family leagues in quite a while, actually. Um, I guess drafted for a friend of mine this year, and unfortunately, uh, he has an AL-only keeper league and an NL-only keeper league, but they had some odd rules I hadn't seen before where you could share the money between the two leagues, so the budget got all screwed up. Uh, I wasn't used to that, so it kind of reminded me that uh, you know, for all the expert leagues and industry leagues we play in, there's always something to learn in this game. But uh, I'm in four leagues this year. Mixed success, but uh, you know, just when we think we've got it all figured out, baseball will always throw us a curve. So uh, it's good to play in as many leagues as you can. Well, what other leagues and formats do you play? Is it all rotisserie? Uh, yeah, I'm doing one sim league. I'm doing three roto leagues. So um, Tout Wars, of course, is a 15-team mixed weekly auction. I'm doing NFBC main event, which is a 15-team mixed. That was a straight draft with weekly transactions. You get a seven-man bench. Uh, I'm in a simulation league, as I mentioned, and we have the Fantasy 411 Listener League that we've been doing, boy, for, I guess, about 10 years now. That's a 12-team draft, straight pick em with daily transactions. That's, I would say that's my most fun league, not that I, I'm not competitive, but I like making daily transactions, and that's the only league that gives me that opportunity, so I, I always have a good time in that league. Have you tried any of the new daily games? Uh, well, I do beat the streak on MLB.com. That's not a shameless plug. It's really, you know, I'm a type A personality, so I really like the chance to get in there and make different picks every day. I got my streak up to 12 games uh, and then lost it. I don't remember who I picked. And we have a feature in the game where you can get a mulligan if you lose your streak between five and nine games. Um, but I had actually gotten to 12, so I didn't even get to use the mulligan on it, and I had to start over again. And how are you doing so far in those other leagues you mentioned? Um, NFBC, uh, my offense has been unbelievable. Of course, I have Miguel Cabrera, so it should be. Uh, my pitching got off to a terrible, terrible start. A lot of guys that I thought would be solid – uh, like Brandon McCarthy, Ian Kennedy, John Neese, Jared Parker. They've all been terrible, but I'm, I'm gradually moving up there. I'm in striking distance. Same with the 411 Listener League. Tout Wars, unfortunately, hasn't been as good. Uh, it's not a very spirited defense of my title that I'm putting up this year. My top offensive player that I drafted was Matt Kemp, and that pretty much tells you how my season is going. Corey, uh, I'm in that same league, and I remember reading in the past that your strategy has been to gather uh, two or three really well-established closers. Did you follow that strategy in tout, and how did it work? Well, it was a little bit shaky. You know, Aroldis Chapman was the only, you know, quote-unquote full-time closer that I got, um, and he's been pretty good, you know, despite a little bit of a rough patch lately, but overall I'm not disappointed in him. Um, I drafted Ernesto Frieri and Kenley Jansen, hoping that one of them would turn into a closer or combined they would turn into a closer. Right. Uh, Frieri certainly has been, and Ryan Madsen had another setback on his rehab. Um, I included Kenley Jansen in a trade to get Greg Holland, who's been terrific since I got him. Um, that, that poor start was all on someone else's roster. But the guy that was really a disappointment for me was Mitchell Boggs. Um, I don't like to bet against players, but my hunch was that Mott was going to be out for a long time, and I turned out to be correct on that. But Boggs was, was terrible. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. And never mind how many saves he did or didn't get, this guy was really a very solid, reliable setup man for three years. So for him to absolutely collapse, um, again, forget the saves, just the fact that he was horrendous, 
that was really shocking to me. But uh, my bullpen has turned out to be the only real strength I have on my team. Yeah, and I remember here at Baseball HQ Radio, we advised our listeners to bypass Boggs way back when and to grab Edward Muhaka. And guess who's the only guy in the world that didn't follow that advice? That would be me. That would be you, huh? <laughs> or me. Well, definitely me. Well, you know, the thing about it is, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that when it comes to drafting closers, I mean, you know, Ron's adage from many years ago is you draft skills, not roles. And I do believe in that when you're looking at two players who are comparable. But we also have a saying at the Fantasy 411 that the road to fifth place is littered with closers of the future. And that goes back to the days of, you know, Steve Chitron and all the guys who were supposed to replace Dennis Eckersley back in Oakland 20 years ago. You know, Boggs was handed the job, uh, was coming off three very good years as, as a setup guy. And while you could say that Rosenthal or Mujica or other guys maybe had better skills, there's something to be said for taking the guy who's got the job. Um, same with Freire. You know, if Brian Madsen is healthy, he's got arguably comparable to or better skills than Freire. But Freire has the job. Um, I was correct that Mott would be out for a long time. I was correct that it would be Boggs' job to lose. But he lost it, and, and that's baseball. That is baseball indeed. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Corey Schwartz, the Vice President of Stats, Major League Baseball Advanced Media. And speaking of that role, uh, congratulations are in order. I understand your mobile app has passed 6 million downloads. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'm speaking out of school, but, but our mobile business right now with bat and our, our mobile site and all the products we do is almost as big as what we do on the website uh, as far as traffic and users and visitors. So it's amazing how the world has changed. But um, our CEO, Bob Bowman, called that one perfectly. I remember being in meetings five and six years ago when we all had the old trackball BlackBerry, uh, and he was saying the world is going to go mobile, and he was right. So we made a big play into mobile, and our, our mobile development team is fantastic, and, and uh, it's worked out. So as a fan, I love the app. I'm on it all the time. It seems like a really perfect thing for somebody who's out doing something sitting waiting for a bus or waiting for something to start what better thing to look at than something that's going to give you your your update on baseball especially when day games are going on it's perfect yeah i mean and as a fantasy player the opportunity to to truly never miss an at bat or a plate appearance to be able to go on and and you know just look at the box score go on and watch highlights watch the actual live streaming video it's it's phenomenal i mean again as a fan I use the application all the time, having nothing to do with my job. Um, and it's a happy coincidence that my job and my fandom interact the way they do. But it's amazing stuff. Our development team continues to, to amaze even people who work here. It is. I've read magazine articles that say that Major League Baseball advanced media in general is like the prototype of the ideal organization for the online future and the mobile future. Well, you know, I hope so. We certainly hope so. Um, you know, as I mentioned, our, our CEO, Bob Bowman, was, was, you know, very heavily invested in mobile several years ago from, from the standpoint of, you know, where users are going to be going and what fans are going to be doing. And I think as bandwidth and technology improve and allow even greater support, we'll be able to include even more features. Um, we've got a, an, an app that we rolled out a couple of years ago called At the Ballpark, where, which is specific to, you know, the game experience in the ballpark you're in at any given moment. You can order food to your seat. You can get special promotional opportunities within the ballpark. It's really all designed. Everything we do is designed towards improving the fan experience and allowing fans to consume the game um, wherever they are, no matter what they're doing. And mobile, as you said, uh, works perfectly with that. Corey, what does your role encompass as vice president of stats for, for MLB AM? Well, I'm responsible for stats and data capture for all major league games, minor league games, winter league, world baseball classic, wherever our players are playing. Uh, we record the data for that. So that includes the pitch, pitch FX system in the major leagues as well. 
So we record every game we do pitch by pitch down in the lower major league, uh, minor leagues. Some of those are just play by play. And we're responsible for capturing, aggregating that data, making sure it's accurate and timely and detailed. And then I specifically and a couple of other people within my group work on integrating with different parts of our company, whether it's mobile devices like at bat, whether it's sponsorship programs, building out all the basic sort of stats and league leaders and things you would see on the site, uh, game day and at bat. And we also work with a lot of third parties, business partners like ESPN, Bloomberg Sports, Stats LLP. Uh, we work very closely with them to distribute our data for them, uh, to, for them to use in media outlets, in their consumer-facing products. So um, our data is pretty much everywhere. Um, you know, obviously the fact that Miguel Cabrera hit a home run last night, that's a fact and, and nobody owns that fact, but we're responsible for recording that and distributing that uh, throughout our business and throughout the industry. How do you decide how much data that you're going to put out there just for, for fans going to the site who want to figure something out for their fantasy teams? Well, you know, we stick to mostly traditional stats on the site, and though I consider myself sort of a, a, you know, a progressive thinker as far as stats and sabermetrics, ultimately we think that it's best to stick, to, stick with things that are a little bit time-tested and easily understood, and we'll gradually um, roll in some other things as time allows. You know, we added the Milestone Tracker recently, which allows you to keep track of how many games before a player reaches his 300th career homer or 2,000th strikeout or whatever. So we really try and use that traditional core data that all fans understand, but there's an opportunity there to, um, to add some advanced metrics to start doing a lot more things with pitch effects. So we'll do that gradually throughout the fu- you know, over time throughout the future, but ultimately we want to provide fans with a real easy gateway to understand the game and then sort of gradually move them up that, that experience of more detailed things. You mentioned Pitch FX. You played a pretty pivotal role in getting it established in the major leagues and then integrated into the statistical portrait that is used. How can fantasy owners use Pitch FX data, do you think? Uh, it's, it's an incredible tool, and I think we've only just started to scratch the surface of what we can do with it. You know, the most obvious thing that people look at when it comes to pitching is velocity. Uh, and clearly, velocity is important. You take two pitchers with the same repertoire, the guy th- who throws harder. Uh, is probably going to be a more successful pitcher than the other guy. But I think we've learned from pitch effects that velocity is not the most important thing. I think command and location and movement are really more important. Uh, You know, you hear this uh, when you talk about buying real estate. It's all about location, location, location. And I really think that's true of pitching as well. Uh, And we've really seen so many examples over the years of pitchers who really don't have great velocity, who throw 89 or 90 or 91, having great success because they can command their pitches and control them. I, I think control and command are two things that we've really started to understand the difference between those things. Control is the ability to simply throw a lot of strikes and not walk people. Command is the ability to throw the pitch where you want it, to repeat the delivery, to repeat the consistency of the pitch. For example, a guy like Steven Strasburg, when he came up, probably had as good a command as any pitcher in baseball. Not only his ability to throw strikes consistently, but to throw every pitch from the same arm slot with the same release point with the same spin and, and movement and everything, that's really a skill that we're only starting to learn now how important that truly is. I saw an article on the web somewhere about release points and how that it's so critical to pitcher success and to, to uh, fooling batters, and they're probably uh, intertwined, those two skills, but not only maintaining the release point to to maintain command of the pitch, but also to deceive the the batter who doesn't see a different release point and know intuitively that something different is coming. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that term deception that you brought up is really you know a, a term that we're starting to understand a lot better now. I used to think deception meant, simply meant 
you know, how long the pitcher held the ball behind his body before releasing it and made it hard for the batter to see. But in fact, deception, as you said, is a consistent arm slot, a consistent hand angle, consistent arm speed, consistent release point. That way the batter is seeing the same delivery every time, but he never knows what pitch is coming out, and he's really got to identify the pitch. So seeing guys who have repeatable mechanics, that's what helps in creating uh, uh, deception. By the same token, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got guys like Bronson Arroyo who throw from multiple different arm angles and create deception that way because he'll throw a fastball, curveball, splitter from any arm slot at any speed at any type in the count, and that creates a different form of deception. So, um, But clearly, I think, for the most part, guys like that are the exception. What you want to see are the guys who have really clean mechanics, a good repeatable delivery, a good consistent arm slot, because if they drop that arm slot a little bit, batters will learn to pick that up and it'll help them identify the pitch a little bit more easily. Also, there are ramifications for arm slot and release point that allow the uh, the teams, both uh, both the team that has the pitcher and the team that's facing him, to understand uh, issues of fatigue or possible injury coming and allow the, if you're the team that has the pitcher and you're looking at release point data and you're saying there's something going on here because that's changing, which could be a harbinger of an injury to come. Absolutely. You said it perfectly, and I think the ability to... Uh to correlate the pitch FX data and other advanced data sets with injury data is going to be a critical development in the industry in the next several years. Um, we, can under, we can look at guys who are hurt now and go back and find things about them. The ability to use that data predictively, I think, is really going to be a breakthrough when it happens. Um, and we've seen some studies that show the arm slots dropping, but you have to remember, players don't always do the same thing every single time. Sometimes it's by design. So, for example, you know, a guy like Brandon McCarthy, who's very much of a sabermetric favorite, you know, he purposefully changed his arm slot a few years ago, uh, and that really enabled him to, to improve his results. So it's a combination of using the data and the scouting and the coaching all together that will really lead to the breakthroughs. You attended a, and participated in a recent technology and sports conference at Fordham University in New York, and you said technology has advanced to the point where there may be more stats than teams know how to use. What did you mean by that, and where do you see that going? Well, yeah, absolutely. We've got a nice problem to have now in, uh, you know, in sports, particularly in baseball, where we have massive amounts of data. Um, so, for example, the pitch FX database going back to about 2008, we've got about 4 million rows of pitch data in there. And certainly you're going to aggregate, but it also creates a, you know, a challenge in data mining and figuring out what things are meaningful and what things are not. When we start to look ahead at advanced data sets like, uh, like, like TrackMan, which is big in the industry, like HitFX, which the clubs get now, and ultimately FieldFX when we do that, there are roughly, uh, let's call it 275 to 300 pitches thrown in any major league game. Um, but on the field, we've got nine fielders, and they're moving constantly, and you've got roughly 60 batted ball events during the game. So when we get field effects, we're going to be awash in data uh, that isn't just a half a second long, like the duration of a pitch leaving from the release point to home plate, but a, a play can last 5, 10 seconds or even longer. So we're going to have massive amounts of data. Um, so really the challenge now for clubs and, and analysts is not about getting advanced data, although we'll continue to get more of that. It's how to manage it, make sense of it, and really do the data mining to bring out meaningful, actionable information. And the same thing could be true of fantasy owners. Our listeners here at Baseball HQ Radio and our subscribers at the website tend to be a bit more technology-savvy and stat-savvy than probably the average fantasy owner, and they're probably, as a result, more comfortable for the most part with second-order stats like strikeout rates and walk rates and BABIP and expected ERA or expected FIP and so on. But 
what new stats would you encourage these fantasy players if they're already familiar with and comfortable with those kind of second order stats? Where do they look for the next step up in data? Well, the thing I'm looking forward to seeing that I think will really help an understanding of the batters is, uh, is hit FX. Um, that data is not publicly available right now, but I think in time there will be something of that nature available. And ultimately, you know, let me backtrack a little bit and frame my answer. One of the things that I think has made Baseball HQ so successful over the years, and I'm not trying to blow sunshine at you, is that it took a lot of these advanced concepts and made them very simple and understandable. For example, a guy who hits a lot more fly balls, given the strength, is probably going to hit a lot more home runs than a guy who hits a lot more ground balls. Um, If a pitcher puts on a lot of base runners but has a very low ERA, odds are eventually some of those runners will score and the ERA will go up. So using that to sort of frame the answer, when we start to get things like hit effects and see who hits the ball the hardest, who has the greatest consistency of hitting line drives and you know hard ground balls, those players are likely to get more hits. And that's just sort of an intuitive thing. So you know that's one little example of something that, that hopefully will be out there in the public data set in time. But I think that's where also where pitch effects comes in handy. Velocity, as I said before, is not in and of itself the single most important thing, but changes in velocity can tell you about pitchers, changes in pitch selection. So Kyle Kendrick is a guy that I really hyped a lot coming into this season because last season in the second half, he scrapped his, uh, his, his cutter, which was not a very successful pitch for him. Um, you start to look at what, maybe I have it backwards, he scrapped his slider or, and kept the cutter. But anyway, he took his least successful pitch and he got rid of it, and now we're seeing great, great uh, results from him. Even simple things like, like pitch classifications, having that information out there, understand what players are doing differently. I think that will give us a, a better opportunity to make predictive uh, assessments of what they may do in the future. Before we close off this whole thing, what do you think are the chances that Major League Baseball is going to eventually go to pitch FX or some kind of similar camera computer system to call balls and strikes and alleviate the umpires of that responsibility? <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly will not speak from, for, the, for the commissioner or his office in that regard, but as an interested, interest, as an interested observer, um, I think it's unlikely. I think we have to accept that uh, despite the... the um, the unfortunate mistakes that do happen sometimes. I think on the whole, the umpires do an outstanding job. um, And I have had the opportunity to see some data to support that. It's just unfortunate that the mistakes always stand out. Um, But I think the umpires do an outstanding job in general. Uh, I think that's the belief within the industry in general. Uh, And I think as we have pitch FX and other advanced data sets, those can be used not only to evaluate the umpires, but to help train them and help some guys learn a little bit more about where they're maybe not doing as well and improve in the future. So um, if I had to guess, and this is purely a guess, I don't think we'll see automated balls and strikes uh, anytime in the near future. You said something about in general they do a pretty good job. Does that mean specifically some of them don't do such a good job? <laughs> well, look, I think mistakes get made, and I don't think anybody will deny that. Um, but I, in general, I'm referring to, you know, you look at the, the, uh, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands of pitches that get thrown every season, you would be surprised at, at how incredibly high the percentage is of the number of balls and strikes that are called correctly, the number of bang-bang plays on the bases. Um, it's unfortunate that mistakes get made, but I think those are very much the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, I understand that. You know, Out of, a, out of a, a million pitches that are thrown, Miguel Cabrera hits a lot more of them hard than Chris Getz does, but we can identify Miguel Cabrera is really good at his job, and Chris Getz maybe not so much. Is the same true of the umps? Well, look, I, I think in any field of endeavor, um, you're going to find people, you know, if you take a set of 100 people, there's going to be one person who's the best and one person who's near the bottom or at the bottom of the list. But I think we have to understand that the bar is extremely high. 
So even the guys who rank near the bottom, if you were going to do an objective ranking, are still extremely skilled at their craft. And, I, I, you know, again, the mistakes always stand out, and it's unfortunate that sometimes they always seem to come at the worst time. But I think we do have to accept that these are really, you know, just like the baseball players are the, are the top of their profession in the world, so are the umpires. Well said, Corey. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Corey Schwartz from Major League Baseball, Advanced Media Vice President of Stats there. And, Corey, you're also a fantasy player, very successful fantasy player yourself and a, and a player evaluator. We've been asking all our expert guests this week to tell us whether various storylines we've been seeing during the season, player performances, are facts or flukes. Uh, we asked Doug Dennis last week about Jan Segura, and we're going to be hearing from Dan Becker of Baseball HQ on the subject in a few moments. But I'd like your take. Right now, he's the most profitable guy in Tout Wars. He was auctioned for $6, I think, to Al Malkior. He's currently about $37 value. Jan Segura, a fact or a fluke? Mm, do, does it have to be one or the other, can I, or can I split the middle road? Uh, I think he has the potential to maintain a plus batting average, somewhere around 300. Uh, and I think with that, you know, remember, stolen bases are as much about opportunity uh, and, and will to attempt as it is just being fast. Um, Segura started the season batting eighth. That was going to limit his stolen base attempts. Now he's moved up to the top of the order where he's expected to steal more. So I think he can maintain plus value in batting average and steals. I don't want to hang any numbers on it beyond saying that. But I don't believe the power is real. Uh, He never hit more than 10 homers in a season in the minor leagues, despite coming up through the Angels system, which is just one great hitter's park after another. Um, He's a small guy, and I think he certainly has, has shown the ability to drive the ball this year, maybe more than we thought but I wouldn't expect to see that many homers. I would expect his power to continue to manifest in terms of a lot more doubles and triples and maintaining a high batting average. So remember last year, Michael Bourne came out and hit a lot of homers early on in the season. We were all amazed by his power surge and he ended up with nine homers. Um, I could see Segura ending up with something like 11 or 12 homers uh, and still having a very good season, but just not being able to maintain the power output. Nate McClough was undrafted in Tout Wars and probably in many mixed leagues, but so far, 25 bucks value. Is Nate McClough's big season a fact or a fluke? Well, you know, he started to cool off, too. You know, we, one of the things we always have to be careful about is looking at sample sizes. You know, McClough was on fire for a couple of weeks in late April and early May. Uh, he's cooled off since, and now he's down into the 260s, and he's sort of the, you know, the opposite of Segura. If you're not getting on first base, you can't steal. Um, but, you know, McClough was a 2020 guy for a couple of years earlier in his season, he had some problems uh, in Atlanta. He seemed to be having some eyesight problems. I don't know if he had LASIK surgery or got contacts or whatever, uh, but whatever was ailing him then um, has, has seemingly been addressed. He played very well for Baltimore down the stretch last year and has been consistent with that this year. So I'd expect a, a, you know, a neutral to slightly negative batting average, a little bit of pop, and when he gets on, he'll run. So he should be able to return value all year. Mitch Moreland of Texas was a reserve pick in Tell Wars. Fred Zinke grabbed him, and he's been a $17 player so far, 10 homers, 24 RBIs. Is that a fact or a fluke? I think he's a fact, and honestly, I don't understand why there are so many doubts about this guy. Um, he hit for average and decent power in the minors. He's hit lefties throughout his major league career. He has very little platoon split, so the notion of this guy being a, you know, only a part-time player, I'm not sure where that came from. Uh, but statistically, other than the fact, you know, look, skill levels vary, but... He can hit lefties. He's got decent place discipline. He should maintain a decent batting average. He's got anywhere power. Uh, I think he's a very underrated and undervalued player, and he was a very nice pick on Fred's part, and kind of kicking myself I didn't go for some of that myself. Chris Davis of Baltimore in a similar situation, raised some eyebrows. Scott Swainey and Tout bid $16. He's almost uh, $30, so he's pretty much doubled his money. 
Do you think Chris Davis's growth is a fact or a fluke? I think it's a fact. Um, I don't think he's going to hit 330 all year. But remember, coming up through the Rangers system, he did hit for very high averages despite the high strikeout rates because he's a guy who just hits the ball so hard, kind of like we were talking about Cabrera earlier. He hits the ball, line drives and, and long fly balls. So even though he's going to strike out a lot, he's going to have a very high batting average on balls in play because of all the, the home runs and the hard hit balls. He reminds me very much of, of this year where Edwin Encarnacion was last year, a guy who had shown flashes of ability, never really put it together for a full season, but in the previous season gave you enough of a platform to believe a breakout could be possible. Davis is 29, just like Encarnacion was last year. So we call that late prime. We generally look for guys to break out around 26 or 27, but there's no reason to think a guy can't do it at the age of 29. So, you know, will Davis hit 50 homers and drive in 140 runs or whatever? I really don't know. But if he ended up with the same numbers as Encarnacion did last year, minus the steals, I I don't think anybody should be surprised about that at all at this point. You know, a couple of years ago, I did a research piece for BaseballHQ.com that found, for hitters anyway, that experience was as good or better a predictor of breakout than age. Mm -hmm. We found a good way to target batters was to get them in the season after they passed through that 800 to 1,000 plate appearance threshold. Davis hit the 1,000 threshold in 2011 and, of course, broke out big in 2012. He hit 270, 33 home runs. But 2012 was also his age 26 year. Do you think plate appearances as a measure of experience have the predictive value we normally associate with player age? Yeah, no question. I, I think you're right there. And we generally apply a similar model more to pitching than hitting um, that we look at for pitchers who maybe are in their third, second or third full season in the rotation around or just having recently crossed 500 career innings. So that's where you're expecting to see that physical growth and maturity that comes with age intersecting with experience and, and the skill all sort of coming together. So we like to find those guys right around 500 innings, right. you know, um, guys like Matt Latos who can take a big step forward. Last year we were really heavy on Brandon Morrow, guys like Doug Fister, combining the physical growth and maturity with the skill and experience. And as you said about Davis, you know, physical maturity, look at him, the guy's a beast. And now he's settled into a full-time job uh, with the Orioles last year, full-time job this year. That lineup has matured around him. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's the perfect example of age and opportunity and skill all coming together at the right time. Let's continue talking facts and flukes, Corey. The big loser so far, uh, Jason Hayward, went for $31 a tout, and he's returned minus six, even allowing for his appendix issues. Is Hayward's terrible first seven weeks a fact or a fluke? Uh, I think it's, it's a fluke. I think last year he might have been a little bit over his head. Um, you know, again, because of the high strikeout rate, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm contradicting myself, you know, just talking about Davis. Um, but Hayward's more of a ground ball hitter um, than Davis. So that's going to make him very heavily dependent on making hard contact um, when he does strike out so much. So uh, I, I think, you know, probably last year, given his existing skill set, last year might have been his ceiling, um, you know, barring any growth. And, you know, again, he's 22 or 23. So, you know, we expect to see that growth 26, 27. We have a rule of thumb that the younger a guy makes it to the majors, the more likely he is to become a superstar because you have skill and experience coming together much earlier. Um, Hayward, we might be seeing, seeing a little bit of consolidation for him this year where he's got to bring down that strikeout rate a little bit. Maybe he hits 260, 270 with 22 homers. That would be considered a disappointment. But if you start to see growth and improvement in the walk rate and cutting down the strikeouts, I think long term it'll be viewed as a positive season. So um, I'd be willing to buy low on him right now, but by the same token, I wouldn't expect a repeat of what he did last year. 
I hate to rub salt in the wound. Matt Kemp was a top rounder at $37 in tout. Mm-hmm. He's barely double-digit value. What are you thinking about Matt Kemp? Fact here or a fluke? Uh, honest, I'm sorry to say I think it's a fact. Um, you know, I knew the risks going in, um, but basically my bet was one of two things. It was sort of an all-in bet when you play poker that you've got to decide either you've got the, car- got the cards and you're going to push in your chips or you're going to fold. Um, Matt Kemp, if healthy, you know, if the shoulder was healthy, there's no way he wouldn't earn $37. He'd hit 300, he'd hit 35 to 40 homers, steal 20 plus bags, and I get paid on that and I have a great year. If the shoulder's still a problem for him, the power won't return and I'll take a bath on that. And it looks like that's what's happening. But it's not just the power. He's totally, he looks really defensive at the plate. Um, you know, the strikeout rate is way up. He's not walking. The lineup around him has collapsed. I, you know, I don't remember whose, whose show I was on over the, you know, back in the spring, but we were talking about how much money the Dodgers had spent. And I said, yeah, but I can make an argument for this being one of the worst lineups in baseball. Adrian Gonzalez with the power outage, Andre Ether, who doesn't hit lefties, not knowing what we'll get from Carl Crawford. Is Hanley Ramirez a 250 or 260 guy? And that was even before the thumb injury. And Matt Kemp with the shoulder problem. So um, it's nice that he's got the seven steals, but it's very hard to see the power coming back to his previous levels because clearly that shoulder is still not right. Let's look at some facts or flukes uh, on overperforming pitchers. Patrick Corbin of Arizona went for a buck to Derek Van Riper in tout mixed. 30 bucks so far. Not bad. Fact or fluke? Wow. Well, I think he's a fluke in the fact that, you know, I don't think you'd look at any pitcher maintaining a, a one ERA all year long. So Corbin certainly won't either. Um, but can he be successful all year long? I, I, think, I think he can. You know, he's a great example of a pitcher who doesn't have, you know, finger croats great stuff. He only throws around 90 or 91. But his slider has become a real wipeout pitch. And if you listen to opposing hitters talk about it, he has tremendous deception with his slider. Same arm slot, same release point, same arm speed, and really drives it low and in. He's sort of, you know, that lefty pitcher who drives it at the back foot of righty hitters. Um, And he's become very successful with that. So he didn't have great numbers last year with Arizona in his, his, you know, sort of partial season. But he was a very highly touted prospect coming up through the minors. Uh, And I think he's a great example of how pitchers can be successful without you know, a Roldis Chapman type velocity. And uh, staying with young pitchers, Shelby Miller went for $3 in tout to David Gonas, $27 value, $24 profit, fact or fluke? I definitely expect some regression here. That's not to say he won't be successful either, but Miller's essentially a two-pitch pitcher, fastball and, and uh, curveball, although his curveball looks like a slider coming from anybody else. He, I think he's thrown so few change-ups all year, you can count him on one hand. He's really a two-pitch pitcher. Um, And when you throw 97 or 98 with a wipeout breaking ball like he does, you can succeed on that. But I think eventually the league will catch up with it a little bit. The other thing is Miller's never thrown a full season worth of innings at any level, no matter how you combine them up. Uh, And he threw a lot of innings in April because he was throwing so dominantly, there was no reason for him to come out of the game. We'll have to see what he's doing in August and September when he really is going as far into a season as, he, as he's ever gone before and setting new, you know, new, new thresholds on the number of innings he's thrown. So uh, as much as I think he can be successful all year long, I would probably be looking to sell high on him right now as much as any of these guys we've talked about. Good call. Uh, Maybe around the All-Star break when trade talks really heat up, that's when you want to dangle Shelby Miller out there. Uh, Gonis also grabbed uh, Hiroki Kuroda. We liked him at BaseballHQ.com, I can tell you. $23 value on an $8 bid. He's got a 2 ERA, a 1 whip. Fact or fluke? He's a fact. I mean, you know, look, again, not a 2 ERA, but I think he established very clearly when he was with the Dodgers and then last year in his first year with the Yankees that this is a guy whose stuff will play anywhere. 
He had no home run split when he played for the Dodgers. He was as good away from that ballpark as he was at home. He handled Yankee Stadium very well last year uh, with that splitter and that breaking ball. He keeps the ball down. He's not terribly home run prone. Uh, and he throws hard enough. You know, people look at him and say, oh, 37-year-old guy, he throws 94, 95 miles an hour. He's got legitimate strikeout stuff. So um, I expect the ERA will regress up a little bit, but I think he'll end up in the low threes right around where he's been throughout his career. Corey, I don't know why I'm always surprised by this, but A.J. Burnett, $19 so far this year. Who'd have thunk it? He went for four. Fact or a fluke? I think his, his experience um, with the Yankees really turned off a lot of people to him, but um, if you look at it, when he's pitching the National League, he's always been very successful. Struck out a lot of people. You know, it's always an issue with him how many he'll walk, and he's capable of having those blow-up starts from time to time. Uh, but he is what he is, a, a high strikeout, so-so ratio guy. You know, part of his value, though, will be dependent on how much run support he can get from the Pirates. I think there's been some improvements in that lineup. Uh, Starling Marte has really emerged, but I think he's going to regress a little bit. Um, he may be one of those guys who has a fantastic season and only wins 12 or 13 games. And as much as we don't chase wins, you know, they do count in most leagues. So I think that will drag down his value a little bit. And finally, a couple of underperforming pitchers. Here at the show, we've talked about David Price and Cole Hamels, who are teaming up to pretty much kill my tout team. But what about Brandon yeah, yeah. Morrow of the Jays? Strong projections, a $13 bid, a minus 11 performer so far, 5 ERA, almost a 1.5 whip, and only 35 strikeouts. Is this a fact or a fluke? Well, it, it, it's a little bit concerning. You know, he's, he had some injury problems, so it's tough to say exactly what, what the shape of his season will be long term. But his strikeout rate really declined last year, even though you know, the walk rate and the ERA declined as well. And that was certainly by design. I don't want to say pitch to contact because it's kind of a trite term. But clearly he was a guy who focused on pounding the strike zone, not always going for the strikeout, but trying to get some you know, early count ground balls or whatever. And for the most part was very successful with that. Um, but his ERA was lower than it should have been. You would have expected to see something in the mid to upper threes. So I think the truth is somewhere in between where he is now and where he was last year, that that ERA will come down, but I don't see an ace here. I think I see a very good number three pitcher because he can still strike out seven or eight, but, you know, he's not going to be a dominant pitcher, um, you know, not yet at least. Speaking of ace caliber pitchers, though, Matt Cain of the Giants fetched a $23 bid and so far pretty much replacement level, decent whip around 118, but a ERA over five, fact or fluke? Total fluke. Uh, you know, other than some terrible bad luck on his home run to fly ball rate, I haven't seen or read or heard anything about Matt Cain to think, make me think there's anything wrong with him. So, um, you know, it's funny that he's one of those guys who sort of broke the mold over the last few years of having an ERA lower than people would have expected based on his strikeout rate, walk rate, home run rate, and so forth. And finally, you just have to accept that there's a skill there, that this is what he is. This year, he's on the other end of the spectrum, but I think he'll regress back towards the middle, uh, and I think he'll be fine. So uh, this is a good time to try and buy low on Matt Cain. Fantastic. Corey, thanks very much for doing this. And as we wrap up, sure. maybe you can tell our listeners all the many ways they can keep track of your work and get more of your commentary. Well, thank you, Patrick. I appreciate it. Uh, we do a podcast uh, twice a week that you can download on iTunes, the Fantasy 411, typically on Mondays and Fridays. Um, although after Memorial Day, we'll be out on Tuesday. Uh, we have the blog, fantasy411.mlblogs.com, where we update our pitcher ditch rankings. We take fan questions. Uh, we post commentary on all sort and number of things. And, of course, we're very big on Twitter, at Fantasy411. I'm at Schwartzstops, although that's not always baseball, sometimes music and politics and other things, so I have to warn people. And Mike Ciano is at the Captain 20, at the Capt, C-A-P-T 23, as in Don Mattingly. 
Okay, and uh, I know you're also a musician. You play regularly in the New York area. <laughs> Whenever we get somebody on uh, on the show here who has a musical background or musical um, interests, uh, just curious what kind of tunes that you're listening to right now that maybe people haven't heard. We'll try to find them and play one for them, for our listeners. Oh, sure, I appreciate that. Well, uh, as a kid, I was a you know a classic metal and punk fan. You know, now bands like Metallica, Slayer. I love High on Fire. Um, Big Queen's the Stone Age fan. They have a new record coming out. The band that people might not have heard of that I really love, though, um, unfortunately they're not around anymore, but they put out some great records a few years ago. A band called Katie May. Kind of an alt-rock, country-tinged kind of band uh, from Brooklyn. Maybe kind of a drive-by truckers kind of vibe. Um, they put out two EPs uh, and an LP, 20 songs in total, that I think are just phenomenal, phenomenal music. Um, as I said, the band is not around anymore. They've all split up and doing some separate things now. High Irons. Uh, Abilena Valley, some of the bands that shot, shot off from that. Uh, but their music is available on iTunes. It's terrific stuff, and I, and I would love it if people would check it out because um, I, 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 this is a band that I thought should have been huge, uh, but you know, timing just wasn't in their favor. But great, great music, Katie May. And uh, because we have to type it into search engines, how do you spell Katie May? Two words, K-A-T-Y on the Katie and M-A-E on May. Katie May. I'm 0 for 2. And I can even tell you, the EPs were called uh, The Lightning and the Sun, then they put out an LP called Sweetheart Deal, and then the, the uh, EP, which was their last release, was called You May Already Be a Winner, and it's, it's really terrific stuff, one of my favorite bands. And what's your band called, if anybody uh, happens to see it in the New York area? <laughs> We've changed our band name many, many times as people have come and gone. I think right now we're called Ready, Set, Destroy, um, which is kind of a, you know, a pretty high, tall order to put on a, a band of amateurs who've been doing it for two years, but we have a lot of fun. All right, and a lot of fun talking to you, Corey. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for doing this. I hope we can do it again towards the end of the season. My pleasure, Patrick. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Corey Schwartz is the reigning champion of Tote Wars Mixed and the VP Stats of Major League Baseball Advanced Media. Our regular commentaries are next, but first, Corey wanted you to hear a tune by Brooklyn alt-country rock band Katie May. So here they are. It's safe and sound on Baseball HQ Radio.
from their 2003 album, The Lightning and the Sun, Katie May and Safe and Sound, recommended for us today by Corey Schwartz. Our regular commentaries are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Here comes Roger Maris. Just standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside, ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two. That one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit deep to right. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries, and it's a full lineup this week. Matt Beagle is on deck with the HQ Alternatives. Ryan Bloomfield is in the hole with HQ Matchups. And Dan Becker is batting cleanup with Master Notes. Leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about the likely top two picks in the 2013 draft, Mark Appel and Jonathan Gray. With the 2013 first-year player draft just around the corner, it'll be interesting to see who ends up being the top pick in the draft. For now, it looks like it will come down to Stanford right-hander Mark Appel or Oklahoma righty Jonathan Gray. Appel was the eighth overall pick in the draft last year, but he and his agent, Scott Boris, were unable or unwilling to reach a deal with the Pirates. Appel returned to Stanford for his senior year, and for now that decision looks to have paid off. In 13 starts this year, Appel is 9-4 with a 2.29 ERA, with 21 walks and 121 strikeouts. He has a polished three-pitch mix that includes a nice 93-96 mile an hour fastball that tops out at 98, a plus mid-80 slider, and a decent changeup. If Appel isn't the first overall pick, that distinction is likely to fall to Jonathan Gray. At 6'4", 240, Gray has an ideal power pitching frame and is already physically mature. The 22-year-old attacks hitters with a power arsenal that includes a 95-97 to mile-an-hour fastball, a mid-80s slider that has nice late break to it, and a decent changeup. He commands his fastball well to both sides of the plate, but he needs to be more consistent with his slider and changeup. Gray keeps the ball down in the zone and has the potential to be a legitimate number one starter if his off-speed offerings become more consistent. Whether Appel or Gray goes number one overall, fantasy owners in deep keeper leagues will want to roster both of them as quickly as possible. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on the top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Baseball HQ's call-up reports this week have looked at some of the biggest call-ups of the year. Kevin Gosman, right-handed pitcher of Baltimore. Of course, Jerickson Profar, the Texas infielder we talked about earlier in the show. And Jake Odorizzi, a right-handed pitcher in the Tampa organization. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now, HQ Alternatives, with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking about alternative formats and alternative strategy. This week, Matt's topic is streaming. It's not just for pitchers anymore. More and more, you're seeing streaming occurring in position players around the league. 
In several of my teams this year, I've streamed guys like Lucas Duda, Travis Snyder, and Leonis Martin, looking at how many right-handed pitchers are going to face during the next scoring period. Conversely, Ryan Rayburn, Chris Young, Marlon Byrd, John Mayberry, and different leagues and different depths have all made my roster when facing a lot of lefties. I look at Juan Pierre and Emilio Bonifacio's opposing catchers, and maybe even pitchers holding histories to see if they're more likely or not to get stolen bases in some of my shallower leagues. Yes, you can stream outfielders just as easily as you can stream pitchers. We've always advocated not to overdo the positional scarcity and take good outfielders at any part of the draft. With five outfield positions in most leagues and utility slots, the deeper your league, the quicker you run out of outfielders. In several leagues this year, I found myself filling in the outfielders at the end of my draft and going through a streaming process, as I mentioned earlier, looking at the matchups during each scoring period as to who may maximize my team's points. What's made this even more important this year is the injuries. Just on my teams alone, I'm not going to give you the whole list throughout the whole league, but just on my teams alone, Mike Stanton, Jason Wirth, Shane Victorino, Chris Young, Cody Ross, Joanna Cespedes, Justin Maxwell, Cameron Maben, all have found time on the disabled list or out of the lineup. It's more important than ever then to have more outfielders on your reserve squad, especially if you haven't done a good job rostering outfielders early in your draft or auction. That allows you the flexibility to fill in, and you really haven't lost much because you're filling back in with replacement-level players. I think the advent of daily leagues have made us look more closely at matchups. Stratomatic players, such as myself, always are looking at lefty-righty splits to succeed in our leagues, but now with the daily leagues, people are looking more and more at them to try to gain an advantage without using much of their salary cap. Chris Liss has noted that he's rotating second baseman in one of these leagues. He's basically streaming them off the waiver wire because that was the last position he could fill, so he's just putting in the hot guy or someone with a favorable matchup throughout the week. So when you're looking at streaming, it doesn't have to go just for the pitching side of your roster. It can go for anywhere in your roster. So take advantage of your waiver wire, looking also at what you have, and look at the matchups for the coming week to maximize the performance of your fantasy team. With the HQ Alternative, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle is the official video blogger of Stratomatic and writes columns on a variety of baseball topics at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's HQ Matchups, looking at individual pitcher skills for the games to come this week and how certain pitchers match up against opposing lineups. The scale here runs from plus 5, a must start, to minus 5, which is a must sit. With the skinny on games coming up, here's Ryan Bloomfield of BaseballHQ.com looking at Cole Hamill's start against Washington on Sunday and Edenson Volquez at Seattle on Monday. Cole Hamill's owners have had to endure a pretty tough season so far, but there are signs for improvement here Sunday against Washington. First off, Hamill's gave up 13 runs in his first two starts this year. These two bad starts have hid the fact that he actually has a 3.12 ERA in his last eight outings, including a 10 strikeout, zero walk performance against Miami last time out. On Sunday, Hamels will face a Nationals team hitting a terrible 193 off lefties this year, so trust Hamels' 265 matchup rating as he continues to recover from a rough start. And Max Scherzer and his 299 matchup rating bode for strong results against the Twins, who are second to last in the AL with a 694 OPS. 
Scherzer's unlucky 62% strand rate is really the only thing standing between him and a sub-3 ERA. His expected ERA is at 267. Only U Darvish of Texas has a higher BPV than Scherzer among starters this season. He struck out 7-plus in all but one outing this year, including a 10K performance against these twins back on April 29th. On the flip side, Edinson Volquez brings a 5.76 ERA and negative .17 matchup rating into Monday's game at Seattle. His high ERA has been supported by some poor skills so far. The free pass has always been an issue for Volquez, and this year is no different with a 4.1 walks per nine innings. But the one main skill that is different has been his strikeout rate. Volquez typically sits at around eight or nine strikeouts per nine, but that's dipped down to only 5.9 this year. As a National League pitcher, Volquez normally doesn't face the DH, but he'll do just that as this matchup is in Seattle. Volquez was a fringy option even with a high strikeout rate, but he's even less so now until that skill comes back. And finally, Ramon Ortiz for the Blue Jays goes up against Baltimore on Sunday with a matchup rating nearing negative one. The O's are averaging almost five runs a game this year, a bad sign given that Ortiz's skills just haven't been that great. Ortiz did string together a couple of one-run outings earlier this month, but the strikeout totals just haven't been there for him. He's rung up only one batter in each of his three starts this year, and as a result, he has more walks than strikeouts this season. An expected ERA sitting at 599 and a BPV of negative 44 both spell trouble for Ortiz on Sunday. Visit BaseballHQ.com for even more extensive coverage of daily matchups every day, Monday through Saturday. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with Baseball HQ. Attention daily streaming league and salary cap gamers. Ryan Bloomfield and Brian Brickley do comprehensive starting pitcher matchup reports every day at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com columnist Dan Becker, whose advice this week, trade Jan Segura. Jan Segura is a tremendous baseball player, and if you own him in a redraft league, you should trade him as soon as possible. Confused? You shouldn't be. This is the nature of the fantasy baseball marketplace. Last week, I was offered Adrian Beltre for Jan Segura straight up in a 12-team mixed redraft league. I couldn't hit except fast enough. I knew Segura's hot start had begun to inflate his value. But even I was surprised to see it go this far. Owners should have a feel for market value relative to player performance at all times in order to take advantage of opportunities to exploit potential inefficiencies. Jan Segura is an opportunity. Segura is a terrific talent, and he looks to have a very bright future in the big leagues. The hit percentage will regress, of course, but he's got a real chance to steal 40 bases, score a lot of runs, and post a strong batting average if he stays healthy. We've seen 700 plus at-bats at AA and above that support these skills. But those same 700 at-bats completely undermined Segura's power surge to this point. He could just as easily fall short of 10 home runs rather than reach 20. The real point here is that we don't know what to expect. This uncertainty creates opportunity because when it comes to young players, Owners are optimists. They want to believe that Segura is capable of a 20 home run and 40 steal season. They want to believe that they have 2012's Mike Trout, even though the actual 2013 Mike Trout 
is showing us how difficult it is to sustain that level of performance. Yet for many owners, the lottery ticket is always preferable to the known quantity. But known quantities win championships. Turning an unproven commodity into a verifiably elite asset is all any owner can hope to do with a young player acquired late in drafts. The odds favor the proven star over the rookie every time. The chances are good that Segura's market value is at its zenith right now. Trading him for an established top 30 player is a win for his former owner, regardless of how well he plays the rest of this season, because it is the best use of the information currently available. Optimism is important, but brutal honesty and pragmatism will serve fantasy owners far better when it comes to evaluating players. I really enjoyed owning Jan Segura, but I just enjoy winning more. That's Dan Becker, batting buyer's guide columnist at BaseballHQ.com and a member of the Master Notes rotation at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of May the 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 19 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Corey Schwartz, VP of Stats for Major League Baseball Advanced Media and the defending Tout Wars Mix champion. It's really interesting talking with Corey. He's a great guy. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, our League Watch news analysts Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, our minor league analyst Rob Gordon, our HQ alternative commentator Matt Beagle, our HQ matchups commentator Ryan Bloomfield, and our Master Notes commentator this week, Batting Buyer's Guide columnist Dan Becker. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com now and in the coming days for these features. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column is called Cliff Lee's Revenge. Ray Murphy's Speculator column has part two of Skills in Search of Roles. Vladimir Sedler's Rotisserie column looks at how to win those daily fantasy games. And we'll have our regular features on playing time, buyer's guides, division outlooks, pitcher matchups, and so much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. On the site right now, I have a research piece looking at PQS starts as predictors of the pitcher's next start. And, of course, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. And you can feel free to join literally more than 100 followers on my own personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. That's her doing the disclaimers at the end of this show. And congratulations to her niece Jessica and Dan in Regina, Saskatchewan on the birth of their daughter Bianca on Wednesday. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>